Maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. Hey, a couple of reminders before we get into the message this morning. Gals, don't forget that beginning next month, at the beginning of September, women's Bible study starts back up. So please go out to the women's table and check that out. Um, next announcement. The 1st of October, in fact, the first weekend of October, Friday and Saturday, is our marriage getaway at the Buttes Resort in Tempe. If you've never been to one of these as a married couple, I'd encourage you, you got to go. It's going to be a great weekend again. So if you'd like to go, please see my wife, Lisa. Uh, there's information out at the info table about the marriage getaway. Again, that's the first weekend of October. I'll just throw this in as well. We have several couples who have made it possible for other couples to go to this if finances are an issue, because we never want finances to be an issue of something here. So if you'd like to go, but you say, hey, we just don't have the finances, you can still go. So talk to Lisa about that. Then don't forget, next Sunday, next Sunday, August the 24th, we're having a very unique service here at the Oasis. We're going to do something like we've never done before as far as how we're going to do this hour, if you will, between 10 and 11 o'clock next week. I will tell you this, it'd be a great Sunday to invite somebody to come with you to the Oasis. And I'll also say this, it's definitely a Sunday that you're not going to want to be late. You're going to want to be on time, 10 o'clock, right there in your seat next Sunday, the 24th. I wanted to share some other good news with you guys uh, before we move on today, because we sort of hit a milestone about a week ago. Uh, We are now over $300,000 in our building fund at the Oasis. Yeah, thanks to you guys. $301,597, and that's not all. In our reserve account, because of your generosity, over 200000 in our reserve account, and oh yeah, almost 30000 in our checking account. Wouldn't everyone like to have finances like that? Amen. Amen. So thank you guys. And, and listen, as I've shared with you before, we're just waiting on the Lord to open up property, whatever. But you know what? Right now, God is working right here at Basha High School in this auditorium and in that cafeteria every Tuesday. And until God opens up something for us, we'll just keep doing what we're doing and seeing the Lord's supply because he is giving us the funds that when he does open up something for us, we're going to be ready when God opens up the door. All right. Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, our final message of three just in chapter eight, but it's just one of those rich chapters in the word of God that there's so much in there. I hated to do it in even one or two weeks. So we finally are going to conclude Romans eight this week. We're going to have a standalone message next week, and then we'll be right back in Romans nine, uh, the following week on the 31st of August, continuing our series in the book of Romans in Romans chapter eight, specifically Paul has been talking to us Uh, early on about living with the Spirit and what it means uh, for a follower of Jesus Christ to live with, to live by the Spirit and to our advantage to learn to do that. Then last week, we talked about living with confidence, how God wants us to, as His followers, live with clarity and confidence in our lives. And how can we do that? And Paul talked about that. Today, Paul's going to end this wonderful chapter 
talking to us about living in victory, living victoriously as a Christian. See, when Jesus Christ saves us, he not only wants to save us, forgive us of our sins, build this intimate relationship with us, and one day realize the glory that we have to look forward to, but he wants us to learn to live in his victory right here, right now, and to learn what that means. And so that's where we're going to be today. I hope this passage will be encouraging to you. This is certainly one of those passages I think as Christians we could read almost every day of our lives, meditate on, and I don't see how we come away from it without being encouraged in some way through the truth that God shares here from verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. So notice Paul says in verse 31, first of all, what then shall we say about these things? The things he just talked about, living confidently as a Christian. And he wants them to go back and go, you know, what do I say to all that? All that God has showed me so far in Romans chapter 8, it's as if Paul wants his audience even now to pause and reflect just for a few moments on what he's just shared because there's so much there that can encourage us. But then he goes on and says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? And, And here's something we have to start out with. The word if here, in the Greek language, if you will, how it's translated into English, certainly can be accurately translated if. It's not a bad translation. But the meaning of the Greek language here isn't as if it's, you know, in jeopardy or in question. In other words, when we use the word if in English, it almost is always if, well, if this happens, then maybe this will happen. We're not sure. Again, no certainty. That's not how this word is used in the Greek language. Basically, what the original language says is, in view of the fact that God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, there really is no question at this point. If I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and the Holy Spirit lives within me, then Paul is declaring this fact and this truth to every Christian. God is for you. And he wants us now to begin to understand what's that mean? We've heard that verse many times as a Christian. God is for us. Who can be against us? What's it mean that God is for me? Well, first of all, It means to do something in behalf of or for the sake of. And Paul wants us to begin, and and we're not going to even scratch the surface here this morning, but Paul wants us to begin to reflect on all the things that God alone has done for us to show us that he is for us, if you will. And and we could even expand this to go beyond just being a Christian, but just to being one of his creation, a human being. Because what we have to remember is this. The Bible reveals to us that God is a self-existent being. In other words, God never needed anything outside of himself to exist, to enjoy life, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied at all. God could have totally existed for all of eternity as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and would have never needed to create the universe, 
would have never needed to create one planet, one star, one human being. Nothing that God ever created added anything to God. He is all that he needs and all that he'll ever need within himself. So begin to think about what that means and how that translates to us. That means that even though God didn't have to do all this, the creation, you and me and all this, it's it's, it's showing us, hey, I didn't have to do this because it's not like I needed you. It's not like, you know... uh, I did this because of some, you know, need in me to do this. I did this for you. I created this universe for you. I created this world that could be inhabited for you. I made you in such a way to be able to live on this planet and to enjoy the things in creation that I did. I did that all for you, not for me. It's not like God needed the earth and the existence on earth to somehow again be special in some way. He would have never needed to do any of this and all of this. He did this on our behalf. He did this for our sake. He created the family and he created, you know, love and and all of these things so that we could have meaning and fulfillment, but he never would have had to. So when you begin to go back and begin to add anything to God himself, you begin to realize all the things that God has done that he would have never had to do. And all those things should be proof and evidence that God is for us. Because he would have never had to do those for any other reason than just because I'm going to do this because I love you, I care about you, I I want to create you, I don't need to. All those things begin to flood our minds when we think about God being for us. But the word also means this. It means to be over, beyond, or more than. In other words, Paul's also saying this, which is why then he ends this phrase with, then who can be against us? He also wants to remind us that this God, who did all this not for himself, but for us, He also is more than we will ever need. He is also beyond anything that will ever oppose or challenge or come against us. He is is over the top, if you will, of anything that we could ever encounter. So what Paul is also saying is this, that we have to continually recount, as we talked about last week, that if I have God in my life, If Jesus Christ is my Savior and the Holy Spirit lives within me, then there truly is nothing else in this universe that can ever really come against me because what is greater than God? Who is more than God? Who is stronger or greater than God? God is over, beyond, more than anything else he ever created. And everything actually in the universe exists only because he created it. So he's the creator, separate from everything he created. And there's nothing then that he created that's greater than him. The creator of something's always greater than anything that they created. And so Paul says, when you and I as Christians begin to think about the trials, the challenges, the opposition, the obstacles, all that we might deal with in life, we have to remind ourselves, God in my life is greater than that. 
He's more than that. He's more than I'll ever need. If I have God, and that's all I have is God. If I have nothing else but God, the rest of the universe could be somehow pressing against me. And I'm still going to win, ultimately, because God is greater than it all, even if it all came at me at the same time. That's what Paul's saying here. That, that's, that's how, in very practical terms, even a young shepherd boy had greater courage than the whole army of Israel and was able to march out on that battlefield and face his giant Goliath because he knew and was convinced God, the God of the universe, the God who created that giant, the God who created everything he saw was with him on that battlefield. And therefore, no giant, nothing could stand in his way. This is how Christians can begin to live victoriously when we take this truth into account and apply it to our lives every day. Many of you have come here today and just like me, there are things that continue to defeat you, you struggle with whatever, and it's like you get, you get to a point where it's like, you know, how long am I going to be in this situation? How long am I going to have to deal with this? How long am I going to have to struggle with this? And the point throughout this whole entire passage is, I don't know exactly how long you're going to be in this, but I know this, that if God is in your life, you are eventually going to overcome it because God doesn't lose any battles. God wins everyone. Every thing eventually bows its knee to God. Everything and everyone eventually succumbs and says uncle to God. Because there's nothing that can stand in God's way. And if God is in your life and my life, eventually there will be nothing that stands in our way either. That's what it means when Paul says, if God is for us, then who or what could ever be against us? Secondly, then Paul says, listen, indeed, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul's saying, and here's something else we have to recount as Christians over and over again. God did not hold back his own son. That's what the word spare means. He he didn't hold back anything to help us in our greatest need. No, in fact, the Bible says he gave him up for us all. And the words gave him up in the original language literally means to place into the hands of someone else. Now think about what this means. Any of us as parents, we would freak out if we just placed our children in the hands of somebody that we didn't know, didn't know how they'd be treated or whatever. I mean, you know, as a, and what God is saying is, I even, because I'm God, I knew how my son was going to be treated when I placed him into the hands of human beings. And yet I did it anyway, because I did it for you. 
And Jesus, the son, was willing to be placed because he's God. He could have called thousands of angels. He could have wiped out any opposition against him at all. He would have never had to be arrested. He gave up his life for us. And he willingly, as God, placed himself into the hands of those he created so that they would nail him to a cross. Did he do this for himself? No, Paul said, he did this for us. And so when we think as a Christian, if God didn't hold back his son, if God gave me his best, if God gave me what meets my greatest need, which is my spiritual need, even though as human beings, we don't think our greatest need is spiritual most of the time. We think it's material or physical. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He says, so here, here's the, here's the deal. Our greatest need as a human being separated from God is a savior. That's our greatest need. If God met my greatest need, if he wasn't willing to hold back, if he was willing to give me what I needed for my greatest need, then, then why do I doubt him for anything less than that? Why do I think he's going to hold back or withhold something that I truly need that's less than my greatest need? Because he's already met my greatest need. He gave me Jesus Christ, his one and only son. And so Paul's saying, not only do I have to remember that God is for me, and what does that really mean? He also says, I also have to remember every day what God has already done. He gave me his own son. He didn't hold back. He gave me everything that he had, the very best that he had. Which again, stands in stark contrast even to many Christians who we claim, you know, I love God and I'm I'm living for God. And yet, how much do we hold back from God? How much are we not willing to give to God, even though God has clearly already, he doesn't have to further prove it, he already gave us his very best and didn't hold anything back. So Paul wants us to know this, because when we know these things and live by this truth every day, Paul says, you and I are going to quit being victims and we're going to start being victors. Because we live in a world where it's real easy. In fact, it's almost fashionable today to be a victim. And Paul says, God never sent his son to this earth and to live inside of us through his Holy Spirit so that we could end up as his followers as victims. He said, I sent my son so that you could learn to live victoriously and be a victor rather than a victim. We choose to be victims. We can also choose in Christ to be victors that Jesus Christ has given us the opportunity to do. Sorry, I'm a little worked up this morning. And so he goes on to say, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Again, Paul's saying, don't we think about this logically or we don't take the time to think about this? He gave me Jesus. He met my greatest need. Why do then I doubt that somehow God's not going to come through with something for something much less than my greatest need? Paul says, always go back to what Jesus has already done. 
always go back to what God has already done on the cross for our salvation. And I don't care whether it's a spiritual need, a physical need, an emotional need, or whatever it is. It still isn't greater than the need of a Savior and my forgiveness of sin. And Paul is saying, if God went to that length to do this for you, to create this universe that he would have never had to create, to bring you into existence, to do all this he never did for himself, he did for you. And he's more than you'll ever need. You can imagine how encouraging this was to Christians in Rome, living in the Roman Empire at this time, who were being persecuted and maybe even dying for their faith. How much more do you and I, even today, as we move to the end of our age and the coming of Jesus Christ, need to hear this as well? Because so many Christians today are allowing what's happening in the world and what's happening in their own life and whatever to get the best of them rather than through Christ rising above it and getting the best of it. Which is why Paul goes on to say, we need to realize as Christians once and for all that our, our state with God has been settled. <laughs> That's not up for debate anymore if we're truly a Christian. Notice what he says in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? The word charge means an accusation that sticks. Now listen, Paul didn't say nobody is going to bring an accusation. We know the Bible teaches that our spiritual enemy, the devil, is accusing us all the time. He's always throwing out charges. He's always accusing us. But Paul says, does the accusation stick? Does it have any tread to it? Paul says, no. Because here's why. He says, because God is the one who justified us. He's the one that declared us in Christ not guilty. He's the one who acquitted us of all charges. He's the one who forgave us of our sin, past, present, and future. He knew when he saved us, Not only what we have done in every detail and what we thought in every detail, he knew what we would do when he saved us. And yet he still said, if you're in my son, you're not guilty before me. He pays the penalty for it, not you. And that is forever settled. That's how we can live in victory instead of living even in that lacking of, I don't know what my standing with God is. Am I good with God now? Am I not? Is everything okay? Are we at peace? Paul says, look, though the enemy may accuse you, though, though you may accuse yourself, though others may accuse you, there is never going to be a charge that sticks if our account has been placed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're covered by the blood of Jesus. He says, verse 34, who is the one who will condemn Who's going to condemn you? He says, is Christ going to condemn you? The one who died and more than that was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Is Christ going to condemn us? No. Paul even said at the beginning of this chapter, there is now therefore no what? Condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember, that means there's no condemnation, not based on our performance, based on our position. If you're in Christ Jesus, if that's your position, there's never any condemnation coming from God. 
So Paul says, one of the ways we live victoriously is remembering every day that God is for us, not against us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Another way we live victoriously every day is realizing God never held anything back from us. He gave us everything he had. He gave us the very best. He met our greatest need. And if he meets my greatest need, will he not meet any lesser need? And then Paul says, another thing that can help us to live victoriously is when we realize that our state with God has been settled once and for all in Jesus Christ. And then he says this. I love this. He talks about Jesus in verse 34 and he says, oh, by the way, Jesus is also interceding for us. And that's ongoing. That's continual present tense. In other words, he always is interceding for us. He always will be interceding for us. He will forever be interceding for us. Now, most Christians, just like me, you look at that word intercede, you automatically think prayer. He's praying for me. And there's other verses that teach that, like we saw last week, the Holy Spirit's praying for me, Jesus is praying for me. But this word in the Greek language doesn't mean to be praying for someone. It means this. It means to fall in with. Think about that. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I'm with them. It's a word of identification. In other words, Jesus is totally identifying with his people. That's what this word intercede means. In other words, if something comes against us, Jesus says, "Uh, you got to go through me first. I'm with them. And again, I want to draw a little bit of a contrast here. Because how many times are we ashamed to fall in line with Jesus and identify ourselves with Jesus? The Bible teaches Jesus is never ashamed to fall in line and identify himself with me. As broken, sinful, struggling, stubborn as I am, Jesus always is willing to identify with me and say, he's mine. That's what the word intercede means. That's why Jesus could say in the gospel of Matthew, if you've done it under one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to who? Me. Because I am identifying with them. You hurt them, you hurt me. That's why he said to Paul, Saul, at the time on the road to Damascus, Saul, why are you persecuting me when you're persecuting my followers? Because Jesus totally fell in line with these folks. He totally does with his people. He identifies with us so that anything that happens to us also affects him as well. Far from a God that is cold and aloof, We see the Bible revealing a God who's right down there with us. Never promises us, as we're going to see in a minute, that we're not going to go through struggles and suffering and all that. But he does say, I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Because when you accepted me as your Savior, I fell in with you. I identify with you. You're mine now. And I'm going to tell everybody 
there with me. Then he goes on to say, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? The word separate means to divide. It means to pull apart, to create any space. Now think about that. Paul's saying, is there anything, anyone in this universe that can divide then me from my Savior's love? Is there anyone or anything that can, that can get in between Jesus and his love for me and somehow create even a little bit of space? Paul's going to say very strongly, no. There's nothing in the universe that can create any space between me and Jesus and his love for me. Now again, here's why we've got to go back to truth and live by God's truth rather than how we feel in circumstances. Because when things start to come into our life that may be negative or adverse, what's one of the first things that we do? We question God's love. If God loved me, why would he allow these things to happen to me? And Paul's saying, if you and I want to live victoriously, we got to get over that. we got to quit looking at the things that happen to us as if somehow God doesn't love me. Because that's a very shallow view of what love is. Remember going back to last week, God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. It is a love that wants to transform me into the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's love. It's a love that always seeks my highest good, not anything less. And so when we even as Christians begin to question God's love for us based upon our circumstances, we're looking at God's love in a very shallow, humanistic, natural way. We're not looking at it through the lens of the spirit and of truth, which is why Paul goes on to say, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? In fact, in verse 38, he says, I am convinced, a confident, certain conclusion, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, it's not possible. Because first of all, there's nothing again greater than God in the universe. So nothing's going to overpower him. And secondly, from God's perspective, there's never going to come a point in my relationship with God where he looks at me and changes his mind about me and his love for me. That can't happen, Paul said. See, we think that things come in and somehow change the way God views us. And Paul says, you'll never live victoriously like that. You'll be a victim your whole life if you're just out there sort of on the ocean of life, just letting the waves just take you wherever they want to, rather than coming back to the solid foundation that God gives us through His Word and reaffirming and maintaining over and over again in my life. It doesn't matter what comes into my life. It doesn't matter what comes against me. It doesn't matter who comes against me. It doesn't matter how much comes against me. God still loves me. 
And this in my life right now that I'm dealing with, that I'm struggling with, is not a sign in any way that God doesn't love me. In fact, it's probably just the opposite. (laughs) If God allowed it, it's because He really does love us. And He's trying to do something even greater than we could ever imagine. Paul says, too many Christians doubt God's love for them through their life. That somehow His love for them is based on performance. Well, if I just do better, God will love me more. And Paul wants us to understand real clearly, God can't love you any more or any less than He ever did. And when God saved you, He already knew everything you were going to do even after you were saved. He still loved you. Because unlike today, relationships with God aren't based on performance and on how we feel and how we're treated and all that. It's based upon truth. And that's why we can be solid with God. Because God's solid. He's not fickle like we human beings are. Who change from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year. And have relationships that are just disposable. God isn't like that. And then he says this. I want to end with these verses. Verse 36. Paul says, as it is written, for your sake, God. We encounter death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And don't miss the fact that Paul uses the phrase as it is written. Because that word written that we read a lot in the Bible actually is a very important word. It means that God inspired it to be written down so that we could continually reference it and be reminded of it. Because if we don't, somehow we begin to get off track real quick. And what we have to continually remind ourselves of is this. The Bible also teaches this truth. If I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I will suffer for His sake. I will have a cross to take up and carry and bear. And yet today in our Modern churches and stuff, you hear all this false teaching. And that's why Christians today aren't equipped to deal with suffering and trial and all that. Because when something comes into their life, it's like, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. And I must be getting punished for this. And, and they go and, and I must lack faith. Because if I had more faith, I wouldn't be dealing with this and all this. And Paul is saying, did not God write in his word that we are sheep being led to a slaughter And Jesus even told his own followers, if I suffer as the son of God, will you not have to suffer? He taught his followers that. And yet somehow we're shocked and surprised whenever Christians are persecuted. Whenever we go through suffering and trial and tribulation. Jesus said, John 16, in the world you'll have trouble and suffering. But he says, be of good courage. I've overcome the world. It's not ultimately going to defeat you. Which is why then Paul brings us to this great verse. No, Paul says. Absolute negation in the Greek language. No possibility of anything other than this. In all these things. Not some things. 
Not most things. No, Paul says, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. Oh, and please, my friends, hear me today when I just for a few moments talk about this complete victory we have through Jesus Christ. The words mean to overpower, to overwhelm anything and everything else. It's not just a squeaking out type of victory. It is a lopsided route of all that opposes us as children of God. It's not like, you know, a sporting event where the one team just ends up at the end, just squeaking out a one point victory. Paul says, no, no, no. As a Christian, I have to understand that if I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, that I've got to live every day knowing that one day I'm going to have complete victory over the things that maybe for now drag me down, the things that now I struggle with, the situations now that are ongoing. But one day, God is going to overwhelm and overpower anyone and everything that's ever opposed me. And I will stand before Jesus Christ, clothed in His righteousness, perfect for all of eternity, through Jesus our Lord and Savior. That's the victory that we have. And Paul says, you know what? You can begin to claim that victory right here and now. Got myself a little... Let me leave you with one verse. Go back to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 24. I think this is a verse I want to leave us with today. Proverbs. Chapter 24. Verse 16. Just the first part of the verse. Although a righteous person may fall seven times, what does he do? He gets up again. What Paul's teaching in Romans 8 and what this verse is even teaching in the Old Testament is this. God isn't saying there aren't things we're going to struggle with. That we're not going to get knocked knocked down. That we're not going to fall But the victory that we have through Jesus is that ultimately nothing will ever for eternity get the best of us. That whatever fall we have is not a fall for good. That in Christ, you and I always have the opportunity to get back up after anything and everything that comes against us. Because we have complete victory in Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to live that way. You may be here today and you may be knocked down. You may have fallen yourself. You may be struggling and just tired of what you're dealing with. Here's the encouragement God wants to give you today through His Word. Know that even though you might not feel very victorious right now, you are in Jesus Christ. And one day, whatever whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, whatever's overwhelming you right now, whatever's getting the best of you right now, one day will be gone. One day will be vanished for all of eternity. And Paul says, so use that truth to just 
get back up. Don't stay down. The enemy wants you to stay down. The world wants us as Christians to stay down. But God says to his people, to his followers, you may have fallen, you may have gotten knocked down, but you have complete victory in my son Jesus Christ. Get back up again. Get back up again. And let Christ lift you up in the victory that he has provided for each of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our victory in Jesus, our Savior forever. And God, we pray today that the truth that you revealed to Paul many, many years ago to pen to the Roman Christians that encouraged their hearts, that stirred them and caused them to rise back up again, even if it meant martyrdom, even if it meant going to the Colosseum and dying. God, they realized that human death, human opponents would not defeat them forever. In fact, what the world thought was defeat of Christianity only became a spark to spread Christianity further throughout the world. Because Christians who are in Christ cannot ultimately be defeated by anyone or anything. Stephen, when he was standing there being stoned, was not being defeated by those who were stoning him. He was getting ready to receive his victory when he laid his head down in death and he went to be with Jesus for all of eternity in heaven. There was no defeat of Stephen, just like there's no defeat of any Christian, no matter what sheep we do as we go to the slaughter. Ultimately, in Christ, we are victorious through him. Help us, Lord, to claim that victory today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, let's stand and sing today in triumph and victory.